and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director, Mary Alice Park. And I'm Serena Marshall, an ABC News correspondent. And you're right, the boys are gone, the girls are in. Yes, it's our favorite kind of podcast, Mary Alice. The two of us subbing in today. And we are lucky we're going to be joined by... Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown in just a little bit, who's out with a new book. We have a lot of questions for Democrats on Capitol Hill these days, so that'll be a great conversation. And Serena, Democrats woke up this morning really celebrating after that election night, but we know that elections are never just that simple. Republicans were able to keep the governor's race in Mississippi. It's looking like they might have picked up some local seats in New Jersey, though there's still some votes to be counted. But still, Democrats honing in on two storylines that they like a whole lot. Democrats able to secure a trifecta in Virginia for the first time in 25 years. Yeah, that is that is a generation, Mary Alice. That is a huge win for the Democrats in Virginia. Virginia is a southern state. It was a red state. Now it is solidly blue. And it's no surprise they're capitalizing on the fact that they turned that state. The storyline there for me is really one about revenge of the suburbs. We saw that in the beginning of 2017, right after the president was elected. It was Virginia that voted first. And they had those resounding wins from female candidates, female voters, the suburbs really punching back and traditionally Republican suburbs voting blue. And we saw even more of that last night. We're seeing but, a Ma- number of those suburbs being the the districts that are flipping so that now Democrats have control. And Mary Alice, revenge of the suburbs is a great way to frame this, especially because in Virginia you had that cyclist. Remember that female cyclist who lost her job after flipping off the president's motorcade? She came out a winner. So it really was, in some way, as you described it, revenge of the suburbs there. But in Kentucky, sort of a different uh, storyline. Not completely. The Democratic challenger in the governor's race was able to really run up the score, it looks like, in urban centers, in the suburbs. Uh, we should say that that race is still just too close to call. The Associated votes. Press is not calling it. It looks like only a few thousand votes are separating the two candidates. Um, but if the Democrat were to win, he's clearly going to celebrate his big margins in the cities. But I think the storyline there is really one about whether the president's popularity in the Republican Party is going to be enough to propel Republican candidates going forward. The incumbent Republican governor, Matt Bevin, really tried to, uh, well, he literally didn't try to, he literally stood arm in arm, hand in hand with the president just this week. He tried to cast his Democratic challenger as representing all Democrats, Washington Democrats. He said a vote for the Democrat was a vote for Speaker Pelosi's impeachment inquiry. And it doesn't seem like that was enough to put him over the edge. It really didn't seem Republicans came out in support of the president the way perhaps Republicans thought they would, especially with the impeachment inquiry happening on Capitol Hill. They thought that would be a rallying cry for Republicans, and it doesn't seem to be the case. Instead, it seemed to be more of a rallying cry for Democrats. As you said, the Democratic candidate is winning right now by a few thousand votes. And if he does take that seat, it will really speak to what people in red states what the Democrats are able to accomplish in red states moving into the 2020 election, which is just under a year away. Remember, as you said, the president stood arm in arm with the Republican candidate there, and he was the one, in fact, who even made this election about 
himself. He stood there and he said if he loses, this will be a reflection on him as a president. Yeah, it seemed to undercut his argument that the impeachment inquiry was going to definitively rally his base. But it's important to note, like we said, that the governor, Matt Bevin, has not conceded. Let's listen in a little bit to what he said Tuesday night. We know for a fact that there have been more than a few irregularities. They are very well corroborated, and that's all right. What they are exactly, how many, which ones, and what effect, if any, they have will be determined according to law that's well established. We want the process to be followed. The process will be followed. And in the end, we will have the governor that was chosen by the people of Kentucky. He's talking about some unspecified anomalies. He never went into detail about what they are. So we really have no clue as to what he is referencing when it comes to unspecified anomalies. But already the president has been tweeting out a defense of this race, saying that he had a massive impact on all the races. An increase in the governor's race was at least 15 point to maybe 20. No public polling, though, has showed that the Republican was down that much in that ruby red state. It's going to be hard to know whether the president's support uh, helped Matt Bevin in certain pockets of the state, but maybe had a backlash effect for the Democrat as well. I was following some local Kentucky papers that were making that argument, suggesting that actually the Democrat, Andy Bashir was able to pretty much outperform what he was hoping to do in Lexington, which is normally one of the more conservative cities in the state, but the city where President Trump flew in at the last minute. We know that President Trump is a polarizing figure and that both parties are able to use that in some ways to their advantage. Uh, Andy Bashir again, the sitting attorney general in in the state who's hoping to take home that when he also spoke last night. Let's listen. I haven't had an opportunity yet to speak to Governor Bevan, but my expectation is that he will honor. He will honor the election that was held tonight, that he will help us make this transition. Right now, there's no formal recount uh, process. I should say no mandatory recount process. There will have to be petitions from the two candidates, the possibility of a re-canvas, and then maybe a recount down the road. But Uh, even before any of that, they have to certify that vote, and that's still a few days away. Yeah, I think that that it's quite possible that the incumbent is in this for the long run. It could be a few weeks till we have a definite answer. And, And Republicans did come out winners in five other races in that state, including electing the first black attorney general uh, and the president even pointing to those wins saying five out of six uh, if it seems he seems to be conceding a little bit the president there but five out of six wins there he's predicting mitch mcconnell will still win big he's up for re-election next year the senate majority leader and he only has 18 percent approval in his home state so it'll be serena i love when voters deliver split tickets, right? If, if this is how it works out, if in the end the Democrat were to win and you had all these other Republicans that won statewide, but, but perhaps the governor might lose, that means that a number of people went to the ballot box and wrote split tickets. And that is... That's a political reporter's like like <laughs> favorite moment because it means that it reminds us of an important lesson that voters are smart and sophisticated and they are making these choices based on a whole lot of information. And it's it, we have to try so hard to fight that urge to simplify these races. It's possible that some people voted because they liked the president and others voted just because they didn't like the governor. We know the governor there was pretty unpopular. He had faced quite a lot of backlash for some of his decisions to roll back a Medicaid expansion. The Democrats really tried to focus on those types of issues, standing with teachers and education, fighting for health care and a Medicaid expansion. 
people know their lives are complicated and they are willing to take all those complicated issues to the ballot box. And it's really interesting when you talk about a split ticket like that, they rec- recognize, the voters recognize that these two parties will have to work together. Perhaps they're sending a message to Washington, mm-hmm. start working together to benefit the people, put partisan politics aside. Oh, I like that message. Let's end with that. <laughs> because something that is proven to be highly partisan lately, let's pivot to the ongoing impeachment inquiry here in Washington, which is just full steam ahead, day in and day that out. That is not slowing down, Mary it Alice. It seems just, every day something new is coming out when it comes to that impeachment inquiry. And and just this week, a key witness in that impeachment inquiry really changed his tune and said that he, too, was personally responsible for delivering his own demands to Ukrainian officials. We're talking about Gordon Sondland the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. Now, he first told those congressional investigators that he was not aware that the White House had preconditioned any of that congressionally approved military aid to Ukraine. But then he came back and he corrected the record. His memory was refreshed. I believe that was the term that was used. And he came back, Mary Alice, just this past Monday. And that was after a testimony came out. The opening statements specifically came out from Bill Taylor, from Kurt Volker, from other members who have been brought up to test of this administration. And it's so important to remember Gordon Sunland is not a career politician, not a career diplomat. He was a bundler for the president. Yeah, he's he not a, a never Trumper. He's not a never Trumper. He is a pro Trumper. He helped fundraise for the president and was rewarded with that EU ambassadorship because of those fundraising efforts and his support of the president. For him to come back, correct the record, and not just say that there was a quid pro quo, but he personally delivered a message to a top Ukrainian official that in order to get that U.S. military aid, there needed to be an investigation of the president's political rival. That is such an astounding change of tune. Uh, it, it, it is astounding. He, Like you said, he told lawmakers that after a meeting on September 1st in Poland, he pulled aside one a Ukrainian official, a top aide to the Ukrainian president, and he reiterated his understanding that that U.S. aid, like you said, would be contingent upon Ukraine's willingness to publicly talk about some of those investigations that we know the president and the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, wanted. Uh, I think it's important to talk now about how that re- like sort of the reaction on Capitol Hill to this explosive uh, testimony that was revealed. Democrats using pretty strong language about what this means. Let's listen to Representative Garamendi, a Democrat from California. He had perjured himself before the committee. And this is why the depositions are extremely important. You can't find yourself caught up in a lie because somebody else is also testifying and you're going to get caught. That's what happened to Sutherland. Those are big words, perjured. Uh, uh, Democrats would have to have a lot of evidence to be able to take that claim. But th- that's, those are fighting well, words right Democrats there. Democrats have also come out and said it's never too late to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Sort of a message perhaps to other administration officials that they're trying to say, come out and speak the truth, at least what they are taking from these depositions as the truth. Uh, whereas Republicans really had a different message after these transcripts were released. They don't think it changes the tune at all. Yeah, Senator Lindsey Graham from South, South Carolina. Carolina. Uh, we know one of the president sort of bulldogs there in the Senate. When they got the money, and the president of Ukraine is the guy that you would call if you made a case, how do you have a quid pro quo when the person who was the subject of the, of the pro said it didn't happen? We see Lizzie Graham, they're kind of dodging the, the testimony, um, but, but not giving in either. And Mitch McConnell also has some pretty interesting words to say after these transcripts came out. I will say I'm pretty sure how it's likely to end. If it were today, I I don't think there's any question it would not lead to a removal. 
that is interesting there because Mitch McConnell, again, not necessarily talking about the substance of the allegations, but talking about the political punch and whether or not Republicans are are on a fool's errand. If they are starting this and it doesn't have a a shot at removing the president, is that actually going to solidify the president's base, remind Americans that that uh, the Democrats were in out of their skis? Mary Alice, it'll be really interesting to see as these depositions become public. They've only released four so far. There's been more than a dozen behind closed doors. In fact, there's more happening this week and into the weekend. But remember, after these depositions are made public, they plan to have open hearings. And that could change the tune for a whole lot of folks when you have administration officials, not politicians, but career diplomats sitting behind a desk testifying publicly, answering these questions about what they saw, what they heard, how they felt this was being pushed, uh, the political agenda pushed through U.S. diplomatic channels. One of our legal analysts, Kate Shaw, was on Good Morning America just this week, and and she summed it up well, this sort of unprecedented nature of the kind of activity that we're seeing from the White House. I want to listen to what Kate Shaw had to say. One thing they might do is say, okay, so there was a quid pro quo, but that's diplomacy. Exchanges and promises and even threats are part of diplomacy. And that's true, but diplomacy is about the U.S. national interests, right? Using governmental resources to advance personal political objectives. That's not diplomacy. That looks like corruption. And there, I think, is one of the differences that Democrats are trying to make. Because remember, even Republicans voted overwhelmingly in favor of this aid to Ukraine. You have Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham out there saying Ukraine needs this aid. They need the full support of the U.S. government to basically tell Russia to back off, to be able to fight off Russia, both literally and, and, and more figuratively. <laughs> more figuratively. Um, and and so if they're so if the president was using that aid that was that was bipartisan, that was congressionally approved and holding it, basically conditioning it, using it to coerce Ukrainian government, not out of national interest, but out of his own interest. That's a distinction the Democrats are going to have to make if they're going to be successful. And Republicans would have to get on board. We're lucky enough to get to to speak to one of those Democrats, a Democrat that's in the Senate, if if this goes to the Senate, if the House impeaches and it goes to the Senate, man, those Senate Democrats are basically serving as a jury. They will have to figure out how to both, I, I guess, back up their Democratic colleagues in the House, but stay potentially as impartial jurors as a trial goes on. It has potential to be a tough spot for some of those Democratic senators, and I'm glad that we're going to speak to one of them, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, in just a little bit. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're joined by Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, who's out with his third book, Desk 88. The book, the senator said, was partially meant to serve as a guide for the next progressive era. It outlines eight senators who previously occupied his own desk there on the Senate floor. Senator Brown, thanks for being here. Thanks. Good to be with you. Thank you. Senator Brown, Desk 88, for all of those living outside the Beltway might not know what that means. I cover politics every day, and it still came as a shock to me. You get to pick your desk in the Senate. In this Desk 88, you picked specifically because of who sat at it before. Yeah, we everything at the beginning is done by seniority, and people here don't know this stuff, whether they're outside or inside the Beltway. But uh, we and there were 10 freshmen when I came to the Senate 12 years ago, and uh, we all chose, we chose our desks based on we were the last ones to choose. And uh, I had heard from a, a senior senator that senators carved their names in the bottom of the desk drawer, a little bit like high school and or maybe middle school, more like it. So <laughs> I, I walked around at some of the desks that had not yet been chosen. I pulled the desk drawers out, and my eye went to there was a desk that said Hugo Black, George McGovern, Al Gore. 
Uh, and then it just said Kennedy, and I asked Ted Kennedy to walk. He walked over, and I said, Ted, which brother's desk is this? And he said, well, it's got to be Bobby's. I have Jack's. So I took this desk and started thinking about people that had held it, and um, all, all eight senators I chose to write about and then to write sort of commentary about um, their era and related to today and all that, all of them contribute to a progressive era and for a more progressive country. And I, I, I wrote it because I, I firmly believe and always have based on a, I wear this lapel pin, a canary in a birdcage about the mine workers taking the canary down in the mines and, and the mine worker was on his own. He had no union or government in those days to help him. And I, uh, that, that, my belief that, as progressives do, that the power of government can make people's lives better. And the centers that sat at that desk um, were part of that. And I'm increasingly believing that come 2020, we could enter the, a new progressive era similar to the mid-60s, similar to the FDR days in the 30s when so many big things were done and so many big things happened that, um, that help us as a country. Are you trying to reclaim the word Democrat? It seems like Folks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have really used that as a part of their mantle. But but you're trying to say that being a progressive doesn't necessarily mean being that far left? No, I think progressive is. I mean, I, I look at it this way, that history, you know, Emerson once said that history is a battle between the, the conservators and the innovators, the conservatives and the progressives. And the, the conservatives want to hold on to their wealth and privilege and status. They want tax cuts. They want small government. They want special interest influence, big tobacco, big guns, and big insurance, Wall Street. And they want that kind of government. Progressives fight that. And I, I think that I, I've watched this presidential campaign, and I, I I think it's really important always to understand that most of the Democrats on that stage are progressives and want to, want people to have universal health care, want to make uh, child care a public good, and all that that means, want to address climate change. But it's so important you contrast with Trump. I mean, Trump wants to take wants to destroy the Affordable Care Act and take insurance away from, in my state alone, 900,000 people and 2 million people that have a pre-existing condition, just in my state alone. Uh, Trump has refused to do anything in climate change. Trump's in the pocket of the gun lobby. We've got it as progressives, and I, I run as an, an, un, an unapologetic progressive in a state Trump carried by eight points, Ohio. Um, I run as a progressive because you talk about who's on your side, and you talk about work for workers and the dignity of work. Um, Trump has betrayed workers uh, up across the board. Senator, though, is being a progressive different than being a Democrat or looking at your book, how you describe the pro- progression of thought of some of these senators who sat at your desk beforehand? Is that more of what you're trying to take away with this message? Well, I, that, that, that's I am not evading the question. That's a hard question, because historically, there were far too many Democrats that were anything but progressive. I mean, there were there was a segregation of Southern Democratic wing of the party, um, always in battle. But I I, I I I care about that. But I, in modern terms, um, it's 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 always the age old fight, regardless of party, between the innovators and the conservators, between the privileged and everybody else, and Democrats. On that stage, there are a couple maybe that I'm not going to start naming names, 
But Democrats all want to mostly deal, want to get to universal coverage, want to deal with climate change aggressively. Some want to get there faster. Some have different ways of doing it. But fundamentally, um, the Democratic Party is a progressive party. The Republican Party is a party of special interest and hold on to grasp, hold on to my privilege and wealth party. I, I think you should start naming names. Who is the most progressive candidate running the 2020 Democratic primary right now? Well, I mean, by by the media's measure, I guess it's Bernie by your measure, Senator. Okay. Well, by my, by, I, I guess I, I, I'll say the two of them. But I, I, I don't think that. I, I think that it's it's the if, if we if we just play that if we just say, well, Bernie's more progressive than Elizabeth, Elizabeth's more progressive than Pete, we we lose focus of this debate. It, it's it's fundamentally. Um, it's fundamentally not just beating Trump, because I think any number of our candidates can beat Trump, no, no matter where they line up, but it's making the contrast with who we are and who Trump is. Do you risk, though, making this about President Trump versus about the topics that impact everyday Americans, which are the ones that they want to hear the most about? No, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about President Trump's uh, moral, his morality and his attitude towards women and his being a bigot. He's all that. But I want to talk about exactly what you said. I want to talk about how it affects people's lives. And that's why you talk about Trump trying to take health care away. First, he couldn't do it in the Senate. He lost by one vote. Um, then now he's trying to do it through the courts. I want to talk about how Trump's backed away from doing anything on climate because he's in the pocket of the oil industry. Not that Trump is an immoral human being, which he is. Not that he's a racist, which he is. But I want to talk about what he does and doesn't do that so affects the people in our country. He's opposed to a minimum wage increase. Um, he's opposed. He's on the overtime bill. He, he has taken away 40 by his ruling. He has taken away 40% of well, 40,000 Ohioans that were about to get a raise from the overtime rule that, that Tom Perez and I had put into place as the Secretary of Labor in those days, in the Obama years. Um, and that's what we want to talk about. I, I, just, I, want, I want to hear our candidates talk about the dignity of work and how Trump's betrayed them. Not, not his personal morality, his personal immorality. That, that's, that's a given. I care about that, but I want to talk about what it means to people's lives. You write in the book about fear-mongering, and you accuse Republicans of basically trading in it. Uh, but you also talk a lot about the evils of the rich. You write that progressives fight abuse of power with big corporations. Is there a paradox there and a, and a risk of basically swapping one bad guy for another? Uh, no, because I don't personalize it. I, I, don't, I don't demonize individuals when I, when I talk about privilege and wealth. I... I I maybe demonize a party and a movement, the, the Emerson's conservators, the conservatives who want to grasp tight their privilege and status and, and power and money. Um, but I, I don't, and I, and I, I absolutely reject um, this phony populism coming out of the White House because populism, real populism, is never racist. It's never anti-Semitic. It's never, never pushes some down to lift others up. It only divides in the sense that it's that we fight for people against against wealth and against privilege. Um, I don't I don't think there's any um, paradox in that at all. Has anyone talked to you about joining a potential ticket as a VP pick? Uh, no, nobody's talked to me about uh, about being vice president. For one thing, Ohio is uh, my seat. If I were vice president, 
uh, my Senate seat would be reply would be replaced by a Republican appointed by Governor DeWine, and that's enough, I think, to say don't do that to people. Yeah. My my interest is electing a progressive Democrat, and I think almost everybody in that stage is a progressive Democrat um, that that we can stand in contrast with um, the the the, uh, the betrayals of Donald Trump. So you're ruling yourself out as a as a pick right there, but I just don't have any interest in that. I, if I wanted to do something like that, I would have run for president, and I didn't have the great desire to run for president. I, I would have done it. I saw a path. Uh, lots of people had a path. I had a path as a progressive, long-time progressive that voted against the Iraq War, that voted against the bankruptcy bill, that that voted against NAFTA and PNTR, and, and had been for marriage equality and pro-choice for my whole career. Um, I had that path coming from a from a state that if we win, we win the presidency. I just didn't want the job. I love the Senate, and I want to help us. I want to help launch a progressive era beginning in 2021. Senator, the the Senate, there's a lot going on on Capitol Hill, a lot of the oxygen in the Senate being sucked up uh, by what's happening uh, on the other end of the Capitol over in the House. So the impeachment inquiry, a lot of depositions have been released in the last few days. Uh, Have those changed the narrative at all among you and your colleagues? Um, I, it, it, that's a very good question. It's a, what, what's notable about your question and, and what's happened lately is, first of all, more and more of us think that, that Trump is in more and more trouble. Uh, but what's happening is I hear more and more Republicans willing, willing to say privately uh, Trump's a racist, Trump's uh, uh, misogynist, Trump, doesn't, um, Trump lies too much. Um, they're not willing to say it publicly. They're and Senator, just to make clear, these are Republicans that are saying this. These are Republican senators that believe this. They're not. They're not doing it publicly. They, but first of all, they like the tax cuts. They like the. Um, it's a cynical. It's a. It's an abdication of responsibility on their part. It's. It's not what I would call patriotic, um, but they like the tax cuts. They like the attacks on the environment and on labor rights. They like their young far-right judges, and they're scared of their base. And so we we have yet to see any Republicans really show, stand up for what a number of them really know they should. But Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham have both come out about those depositions and essentially said that if the vote was held right now, they don't see a, a removal from office. So for the least the Republicans speaking publicly, it hasn't really changed the needle at all. Uh, is that just a public face even among the majority leader? or in no, that com- I, I, Well, Je- Jeff Flake's a good question, too. Jeff Flake has said if it were a secret ballot, 35 Republicans would vote to remove Trump. I have no idea if that's true. Um, but I, but it's not a secret ballot, and uh, right yeah. now there would probably be no votes, maybe one Romney to remove him. Um, but it's going to get worse, and they're going. It's going to get worse because there there are more and more things that are going to come out. People are emboldened, diplomats and career people and military people and just people that love their country are going to continue to come out in larger going to come out in larger numbers. Uh, Republicans on the ballot in 2020 are going to get more nervous. Republicans on the ballot in 2022 are starting to think about this and their place in history. We're not even close to a number of Republicans flipping and saying they'll support removal, but 
um, it's not out of the question in the next six or eight weeks. So we started our podcast today talking about the election results from this week. And I want to get your take to the Montana governor, Steve Bullock, who's obviously running for president, uh, said that it, w- it should be basically a wake up call for national Democrats. He wrote that there shouldn't be practical proposals. I wonder if that's a jab at Medicare for all. Um, or uh, the latest beltway obsessions that keep Democrats going, but instead they should look for Democrats that can win in red states. What's your reaction to Governor Bullock and your reaction to the election results? Um, I don't have much reaction to Governor Bullock. I've never met him. Um, I wish he'd run for the Senate, but it's his life and his decision, because we'd win that Senate seat with him, Senator Tester says, but again, it's his decision. Elections were good news, and they were good news Where they were closest to home good news, from from, from my perspective, is uh, the Cincinnati suburbs in Kentucky across the Ohio River have been been Republican for five decades. It's more conservative than Cincinnati. Cincinnati was always known as a pretty conservative Republican place. Well, Cincinnati is now becoming more and more Democratic. These suburbs pretty much flipped and, and voted for uh, voted for Bashir against against um, I'm forgetting his name already. The the Devin, uh, and um, that was that was really the good news in that election. You're seeing it's it's suburban Washington that has helped to make that started the clock ticking on the demise of Republicans in Virginia. It's suburban um, Cincinnati and suburban Louisville and Lexington. Um, and it's people of color, and it's young voters, and that's our that's our ticket to beat Trump in 2020, and maybe even the ticket to beat McConnell in Kentucky. That that young voters, women, people of color, have just had it with this bigoted administration, and um, that's 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 where we go. That's how we win Ohio for for the Democrat. Um, that's how we win Senate seats around the country. Ohio had some of the highest concentration of those Obama Trump counties, those Obama Trump voters. Uh, that's part of the reason the state flipped. Can a Democrat win in 2020 without winning Ohio? Um, yes, of course. But I mean, if you win, if you just flip, if you flip Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, we win the Electoral College. You throw in Florida was one point. You throw in, throw in North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, which were fairly close. Um, Ohio, we can win Ohio. If we win Ohio, it's a landslide. Um, it's uh, still a swing state. It's a harder swing state than some. But we, one of the things we're doing in Ohio, we've, we've seen this pretty amazing grassroots efforts effort in Ohio now with young, mostly female, a number of men, of men and women of color running for office, building from the bottom up our, our power base. We win nothing statewide except my race. Our power base is is now local in communities and in, in, in fast-growing populated areas. And um, that's why I think we're in, absolutely in play in Ohio. Well, Senator Brown, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank about, you, Senator. You know, your new book, Desk again. 88, it's uh, tracking the change of progressivism over the years and profiling a number of progressive senators. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks, folks. See you. Well, Serena, he said that no one has asked him yet about being a VP pick. And but he did rule it out. He didn't really rule it out, but he seemed to talk about how it would be too risky for Democrats to give up that Senate seat. Yeah, he did not seem interested in it right now. But as we always say here in Washington, never say never because 
people's opinions and perspectives change rather quickly. And he thinks that Democrats need to focus on some of those key issues like minimum wage and and health care and environment, but without using big terms or sweeping language that runs the risk of alienating people that are also talking about economics. And frankly, Democrats have had a hard time doing that. He clearly is worried about that and trying to provide a roadmap for Democrats. It's worked for him, but they haven't been able to replicate his success everywhere. Really, when you look at what's happening in Congress, specifically when it comes to these issues, they're not moving it any forward right now. Split Congress, that's not going to happen, especially as impeachment is, as we said earlier, sucking up a lot of the air in there. All right, well, we will leave it there. We will continue to chew on all of the impeachment news, the election news, more to come. Rick and John will be back next week. But for now, Serena and I'm Mary Alice Parks. This has been another episode of Powerhouse Politics. See you next week. 